Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. Welcome to episode number 60. Today, number 60 already. 6-0. The 50s flew by, the 40s flew by. Now we're at number 60, and today we are going to talk about money, 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 money. 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 <laughs> Sean's looking up. He was like, oh my God, are the OJs in the room right now? They are. Uh, anyway, we're going to talk about uh, finances today. It's going to really round out, I think, what is going to end up being the trilogy of of money-related, finance-related podcasts. So a while ago, I think it was episode, I'm, I'm trying to think back into my memory banks, episode number 12 was about money, and then episode 28 was about debt. And so... Yeah. What we're going to do today, it'll be about 80% new stuff that we're talking about today. There will obviously be some overlap with the money and debt episodes. We've got some new questions and some hopefully some new answers as well. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we dive in, Ryan, I wanted to do a few things. Uh, first off, I wanted to mention that we are hitting the road pretty soon. We're going to bring an in-depth talk about minimalism to your city, but we're also going to do a live version of this podcast in your city as long as that city is one of the cities we are going to. Uh, it's called the Less Is Now Tour, and our first city is going to be Boston on April 15th at the Wilbur Theater. That one is almost sold out, but there are still some tickets left. Other cities are going to be added really soon. If you're on our email list over at theminimalists.com, you'll be the first to know about new cities, new tour dates, and you can find all those cities at theminimalists.com slash tour. Uh, also, before we before we jump in the deep end here, Ryan, our friend uh, David Friedlander wrote a, an article not too long ago, sort of about economics. Quite often, we'll get we'll get this argument about minimalism is for uh, privileged people, or minimalism is for rich people, which is is always shocking to me when I hear this because, and it's shocking to me because you and I have we grew up really poor, and we knew we could have benefited from minimalism. Then we've met hundreds if not thousands of people who who are certainly making below the poverty line in terms of income who have benefited from minimalism. We've met plenty of rich people who have benefited from minimalism as well. So David Friedlander, in a response to some uh, a New York Times article that came out last year, he, he wrote a really articulate response, but it has a lot to do with, with economics or the economy or the economics of minimalism. And I was hoping to read that and we could kind of start off with... Um, uh, a discussion about that and, and what your thoughts are on, on some of his points. So this is by uh, David Friedlander, who many of you would know from our documentary, uh, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. He was interviewed along with his wife, Jacqueline, and, and their two kids. Well, they had one kid, but then she was pregnant at the time, and they were in their beautiful minimalist apartment in uh, New York. Anyway, this uh, article, Ryan, it's called uh, Minimalism, Class, Fetishes, 
and the fate of the planet. And Sean, if you would, please put that uh, a link to this in the, in the show notes. Or Ryan, as a, as a reader pointed out recently, maybe we should call them the Sean notes because I'm so often telling Sean to put something in <laughs> yes. the, Sean the Sean notes. I don't know if that one will stick, but uh, yeah, we'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Over the last several years, news outlets and the New York Times in particular have portrayed the minimalist movement in myriad ways as a fetishistic fad, a type of blindness for the well-to-do, a source of liberation. These often contradictory views are perhaps reflective of a societal confusion. People, so long economically and emotionally enmeshed with their stuff, might not know what to think of minimalism. Does it have substance? Is it something that will seem as ridiculous tomorrow as the Macarena does today? The Macarena does seem a little bit ridiculous now, doesn't it? And I love the Macarena. Well, yeah, you, you just go to weddings just for the Macarena. <laughs> it's the only dance I know how to do well. <laughs> well, that, I mean, the, I see you do the electric slide all the time. <laughs> You've never seen me do the electric slide well. Well, and, well That's true. <laughs> all right. To make sense of the subject, let's discuss some of the criticisms of the minimalism movement. And let's see if it's something we should be paying attention to. And then he has a section here called Minimalism Throughout History. Prior to the era of cheap, industrially manufactured consumer good plentitude, there was a term for minimalism. It was called life. In this era, which encompasses all but the last 70 years or so of human existence, people used what they needed, and oftentimes a lot less, because manufacturing technology was primitive, stuff was labor-intensive, to make and therefore expensive to buy. To illustrate, the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that a household in 1900, so what is that, Ryan? 117 years ago. Man, you are so good at math. Hey, Sean, can we put the, instead of under health, can we file this podcast under math? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, Great idea. Let's see. uh, He says, uh, a household in 1900 spent Listen to this, Ryan. They spent 50% of their budget on food and clothing. Half the money that the average household made spent half their money on clothes and food. Wow. So socks were darned. Bacon grease was kept in a tin can by the stove. My mom did that when we were growing up. I don't know if... if, I bet your parents did that at some point. Um, uh, Kept by a tin can, uh, in a tin can by the stove and so forth. Other stuff was really expensive too. There were things like radio repair shops because one-click shopping had not been invented yet. <laughs> do you remember Radio Shack? I do, man. <laughs> I saw this amazing, uh, it was a meme where it was a flyer of Radio Shack and had like all these different devices on there. Uh-huh. And literally like the meme was every single thing in this you know, 1988 version of Radio Shack is on your cell phone now. Oh wow! It was all combined into a cell phone. You know, it's interesting. So, so Bex and I have been watching. We we tend to pick like one TV show to watch, and we'll watch like one episode a week or so. And the one we've been watching, we're we're way way behind the times. Uh, is the Americans? Do you know about the show? I've seen it. Uh, it's it's really really good. good so far. It took me about three episodes to really get sucked into it, but now I'm in their world, and it takes place in the '80s. But it is like a pristine version of Americana in the '80s. And mm. you and I were both born in 1981, and we we grew up in the '80s. And I remember, you know, like the the Buicks and the Chevys, the, these big cars with V8 engines, and like 
all of the accoutrements of the 80s, the, the Walkmans and the uh, record players and, and, and the things that, that added value to my life at one point, they've become obsolete. And, and, and I think the problem with a lot of what we're holding on to these days, and this is a total tangent, but we're, we're swimming around in obsolescence. Mm. Uh, and, and, it's, and I really like the thing he talks about here. Like the, the, there used to be radio repair shops. You and I wouldn't even think about repairing a radio. Now, I remember uh, last week, I, in fact, Bex, her, she has, has this, I don't know, 10-year-old, 15-year-old radio, but has an adapter plugged into it so we can listen to, to, to you know, a, an iPod or whatever with, via Bluetooth. Like it has an auxiliary yeah. plug-in or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and it just it stopped working. And my first thought was like, oh, no, now we have to buy a new one because there isn't a, a radio, radio repair, repair shop. shop. Huh. Although I, I still see some places like the vacuum repair sh- store. I mean, so there's still some places or there's yeah. still handymen well, who will help well, out Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's like it comes down to like the cost of a new thing, right? The new radio is going to cost you 50 bucks. Right. Like you can get a... Remember, I don't know if you remember like the I don't even, I don't even want to throw a brand name out there because I re, like JL or I don't I don't want to do something but yeah yeah there were those radios where it was like this five disc CD changer oh man and then I, like the big speakers like that went on either side of it yeah like, you can get one of those for like 120 bucks I mean now those are like 50 bucks yeah if they even make them anymore at right. some point because so so few manufacturers will make right. make them even it, it'll it'll be they'll, they'll actually the price will go up eventually. Um, if you really want something like that, the hundred disc CD changer yeah. is irrelevant, right? But uh, at least for most of us, I mean, it may not be for other for some people. Some people, I was listening to uh, Henry Rollins recently. Uh, Bex and I saw him live when we were in LA, but he was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently, and he has a crazy stereo system that he absolutely loves. I mean, it's he, he doesn't own much. He's he, I would consider him to be a minimalist the way he was talking, but he has this stereo system and he loves listening to vinyl and he just turns it up halfway because the speakers he has, these they're probably $10,000 speakers or something. I have no idea what speakers cost these days. But he, he has these really expensive speakers. All he has to do is turn it up not even halfway and you get all the nuance. Or I'm thinking of, of, of podcast Sean who's wearing his new headphones now and, and he was talking about how he was listening to, I don't know what it was, an ABBA album maybe? Or, uh, <laughs> Why do you go back to ABBA? Oh, is it ABBA or ABBA? <laughs> Tomato? <laughs> I mean, some people's, I mean, I guess it's ABBA or ABBA or ABBA, or ABBA but yeah, no one says Tomato. All Josh. right, he was listening to a Toto album. <laughs> Yes. Um. <laughs> Do you own one Toto album? Not just one. <laughs> it's like Pringles. You can't you can't just listen to one Toto album. Anyway, he was listening to to this Toto album, and he he could um, make out the brush strokes on the drums. And Sean's a drummer. Um, and, and so like, yeah, he was really enthusiastic about it because he got these new headphones and they work really, really well. And, and, and my point is that the, the technology can enhance our lives, but at some point, if it becomes obsolete, we either need to be willing to repair it or let it go. And obsolete for you may be not, may not be obsolete for, uh, obsolete for me. And I think this is an important part of this finances discussion because part of, can I afford this thing 
also means can I afford maintaining it? Am I going to use this longer term or is it a temporary solution? I'm going to have to replace it a month from now. And so I'm going to get back to this essay here. Uh, he says other stuff was really expensive too. There were things like rated repair shops because one click shopping had not yet been invented. And then he has a picture here of this house, right? I'll flip my, my screen around. It's just a husband and his wife and their horse and, and buggy. So man, look at those hipsters. <laughs> yeah. I think this is, uh, this photo was taken in Brooklyn last week. Um, <laughs> um anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, there's a horse and buggy there. And it's another thing, like uh, the horse and buggy is still a thing, but on a much more limited scale than it once was. It's not our main means of, of transportation. I would argue that the majority of horse and buggy situations now are novelty. It's like absolutely racing. Yeah, like nostalgic value. Uh, yeah. Anytime you see a horse carriage ride through the city, it's like a big deal. Like, right. This is what they used to do 100 years ago. Exactly. Everyone was in a horse carriage. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a normal thing. And right. I think our cars will eventually be that way where it's, it's, you're not going to be driving the car yourself. You're not going to be an ape behind the steering wheel because it's no longer going to be safe at some point. There's 30,000 people who die every year in the United States. Uh, over a million people die a year in, in, in the world, a million people. If we can save the vast majority of those people, it's going to make sense to move on. But there will still be tracks that you can go to where you can race your your, your own car your, your car, or rent a car to race, and, and that will be fun for the day. But it's not going to be your primary means of transportation. This is a great business idea. <laughs> anyway, I'll get back to the, the essay here. He said, World War II represented a quantum leap in manufacturing efficiency, which is true because you know, as you know, stuff was, was required to be made, we ramped up manufacturing big time. He said, suddenly stuff was being made with a fraction of the previous labor and expense. By 1950, food and clothes, so just 50 years later, had dropped to only 42% of household expenditures and would continue to plummet with more disposable income and enormous industrial capacity at our command we started making non-essential stuff and i think this is the transition the post-world war ii transition we started making non-essential stuff perfect to f to fill the suburban single-family homes that were becoming the archetypical american housing setup so think about that for a moment we were building bigger houses and we, we talked about this on our last uh, episode with the, the, the housing, the home, the episode on home, episode number 58. We, we talk about, you know, be, just because we have a, a huge space, a 4,000 square foot, foot home, doesn't mean we have to fill it with stuff. But, of course, manufacturers and, and people then, accordingly, were like, well, I've got this big house. I'm going to have to fill it with stuff. And the manufacturers like, it's not some conspiracy. We're like, oh, we're going to make people build bigger houses so we can sell them more stuff. No, it's, it's part of the human condition. We have more space to fill, so we try to fill it, right? Mm. And then David says, but there was a problem. You can only make so much stuff paying the fair wages most Americans expected. So someone had the brilliant idea to combine post-World War II American industrial know-how with dirt-cheap overseas labor. The U.S., once the making stuff capital of the world, according to Derek Thompson of The Atlantic, experienced a precipitous decline in its manufacturing might. And, you know, we're seeing that now. I mean, you and I, 
uh, spent most of our time in, in and around Dayton, Ohio. A manufacturing town was once called Little Detroit because that was a compliment because Detroit was this booming city in the 50s and, and Dayton was a small version of that and now it's very much like Little Detroit. You go downtown Dayton, which is where I once lived, you 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 see 65% of the buildings there are vacant. There are entire skyscrapers that have no tenants, but they're just standing there like remnants of of the past. They've become obsolete in in a way. And so uh, let's see, back to back to the text here. The upshot of this decline was access to abundant and cheap consumer goods. In 2000, we spent only 20% of our household income on clothes and food. So 100 years later, we went from spending half our income to only one-fifth on clothes and food. Wow. So less than half the amount than just 50 years before. Clothing dropped. Get this. This was the most staggering part to me. Clothing dropped to 4% of our expenses, even though the volume of our clothes has gone up considerably, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's much greater. I mean, you got to think in 1900, people owned their three outfits or two outfits that they had really had. <laughs> well, fast fashion didn't exist in 1900. Right, right, right. <laughs> fast fashion, you know, it was, was three months to make your shirt. Yeah. It's like, hurry up, I'll make it in two. That's fast fashion, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it didn't it didn't exist. And, and same went for food. We're, sp- we're spending less on, on, on eating, but we're actually eating more as a society, right? Wow. So fast fashion and fast food. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the next section here is the democracy of consumerism. In her recent New York Times editorial, The Class Politics of Decluttering, Stephanie Land suggests, as other Times writers have before, that minimalism is the privilege of the elite for whom stuff is easily bought and discarded depending on one's mood. She writes about a minimalism documentary (laughs) where, (laughs) quote, bad uh, consumption is portrayed by masses of people swarming into big box stores on Black Friday, slaves to material goods. Versus minimalists who are, quote, independent thinkers, free to enjoy the higher planes of life. Um, And then she goes on to say that those people flocking to Walmart are purchasing furniture or an entertainment set or a television bigger than the average uh, average computer monitor on sale because these things would otherwise be beyond their means. The implication being that these are things rich folks don't think twice about buying. So it's easy and hypocritical to judge the poor mobs for fighting over stuff the rich consider birthrights. I, I, I'll, I'll step back for a second. On Black Friday, I mean, you and I, when we've talked about this before in our, our holiday episode, uh, with, with respect to Black Friday, and um, you and I worked in retail for a long time, and I could tell you that the people who show up on Black Friday are all over the socioeconomic spectrum. Most of them are middle class. Most are middle class people. The vast or, majority are middle class. Or in many cases. Because they're the ones that can afford to go and spend. And like their $100 that they spend on a thing is going to go further at, on Black Friday. So they can get more stuff for their 100 bucks. Right. I mean, it's not poor people showing up with pennies in their pockets buying yeah. a big screen TV because th- that's the only time they can afford it. I you mean, and I never participated in Black no, Friday as kids. We no. couldn't afford it. My mom could barely keep the, oh, in fact, often wasn't able to keep the electricity on. And so, no, we're not going out on, on some sort of Black Friday sale holiday. We didn't have the money to do that. And and so I think it's absurd, but I can tell you who, <laughs> who did do it. Well, I, I had aunts who were, were rich uh, mm-hmm. or, or at least upper middle class. 
and they it was a sport for them to go out on Black Friday. So middle class or upper middle class because they enjoyed, you know, the the sort of hunt part of, of that. And now it actually seems I mean, when you see the, the footage in our documentary, people literally trample, trampling other mm-hmm. people. It feels like a weird sort of dystopian kind of hunting yeah. in, in a way. And so, no, you're right. It is mostly middle class people. We saw coming into our stores on Black Friday when you and I managed a bunch of retail stores. It was they were middle class. No, people. it wasn't someone coming. It wasn't a you know someone coming in with their family of seven who hasn't been able to afford a cell phone all year, and they're like, oh, thank you for having this sale, and we could finally afford this this one day of the year. I right. mean, it's yeah, it was. Uh, I, I never saw that. Um, I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, um, but yeah, I think that that argument is kind of yeah, it certainly silly. exists. It, it certainly yeah. exists, yeah. but 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 it's certainly not exclusive to people no. who are low income. Right. And and uh, w- what I noticed going through the 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 Black Fridays of of yesteryear is that it affected everyone on the socioeconomic spectrum, and that just because you're a middle class didn't mean you're uh, immune to to making bad decisions, right? And so. But you're also not immune to making good decisions. There were a lot of middle class people who came into our stores who were living beyond their means. And so even though they you know, made decent money, they spent even more money than that. And so they had a lot of debt and they were figuring out, I mean, I, plenty of people who you, you were shocked when their credit card got declined, but because they were living beyond their means, as was I and, and as were you at one point. We were mm-hmm. living, even though we made good money, we spent even better money. And uh, so back to the article here. Uh, she says the implication being, or he's, he is what he's saying. The implication being that these things, rich folks don't think twice about buying. So it's easy and hypocritical to judge the poor mobs for fighting over stuff the rich consider birthrights. Uh, it's a logical narrative, but one that doesn't accord with reality. David says. All right, moving on here. As the Times' Annie Laurie reported a couple years ago, the cost of retail goods has dropped precipitously in the last 10 years. It has created what economists call the Walmart effect, which virtually anything produced in a factory can be bought at bargain prices. Rich and poor people alike are drowning in stuff. And to me... That is the key takeaway here from our society. Rich and poor people alike are drowning in stuff. Working off data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Lowry reported that poverty is a function of low wages and factors such as housing, health care, child care, and education, not consumer goods. So, so just to sum that up, poverty, while consumer goods might be certainly be a part of it and decisions we make with that, it, it Based on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, poverty has a lot more to do with the, the low low wages that we have, uh, and then housing, health care, child care, all these other expensive things, education. Uh, this focus on class obscures the main point of minimalism, and that's really what I wanted to get to right here with this finances episode. It doesn't really matter where you are in the socioeconomic spectrum. We can spend the resources we have more responsibly. And so stripped of its formal slash aesthetic construct, minimalism's message is this. You probably don't need that. That could be a new gadget or Nana's quilt taking up space in the basement of the too large home you pay a mortgage on. You don't need it if you have the money and you definitely don't need it if you don't. The stuff won't make you happy and chances are good that it will distract you from the parts of your life that do. As Dave Bruno wrote, Stuff is not passive. And here's my favorite line from the article. Stuff wants your time. 
attention, and allegiance. Mm. I think that's really important. Our stuff wants our time. It wants our attention. It wants our allegiance. But you know it as well as I do. Life is more important than the things we accumulate. The guys behind the movie, that's us. Yeah, that is us. <laughs> the guys behind the... Hey, we're those guys. Uh, alludes... Uh, uh, the, the guys behind the movie that the writer alludes to, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, a.k.a. The Minimalist, both come from dirt poor homes. Uh, we were broke. This is a quote, I think, from me. We were broke, dead broke, food stamps, and WIC, and various other forms of intermittent government assistance, Joshua Fields Milburn said. Uh, their respective origin stories involve a pursuit and eventual attainment of money and material wealth. By age 19, I was making over $50,000 a year, twice as much as I'd ever seen mom bring home, but I was spending even more racking up credit card debt. I obviously needed the three M's in my life. Make more money, Milburn said. He and Nicodemus traveled the well-trodden path toward happiness via professional advancement, leading to increased stories of stuff and increased overhead debt and stress. And they also found out that that path led nowhere. Something, incidentally, the Times documented a few years ago in the op-ed piece, Living With Less, A Lot Less, by Graham Hill, who was also on our documentary. While the devotees of Marie Kondo might suggest minimalism is a patrician dalliance, there are plenty of people like Milburn and Nicodemus who came from modest means, people who arrive at minimalism after bottoming out on the pursuit of actualization through accumulation. And then he put a, this, this uh, photo in here. You got to see it, Ryan. It's, uh, it's an onion cover. <laughs> it says the top 10 products to battle consumerism. Oh, wow. And, and I, that, that's where we always have to be you know, skeptical, right? The where, onion is fake news, just yes. for those who aren't aware of it. Yeah. yeah. I, think it, I thought it was alternative news. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yes, Kyle Shocker writes, the oppressive gospel of minimalism. Minimalism can be culturally appropriated by wealthy folks. Uh, first time something like that's happened, eh? Is, is what David wrote here. It can take on a dwell magazine slash a MoMA store sheen that obscures the essence of the movement, which is all about intentional subtraction. There are no purchases necessary to be a minimalist, and it's a good idea to be suspicious of anyone that says there are. And I think that's, that was the, 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 the great way. And he, he goes on even farther here about... Um, the biggest reason to go minimal, but I'd like to, to pause for a second and just say, yeah, let's be suspicious here. There are tools that will add value to your life. There are books and our documentary and uh, Joshua Becker and Leo Babalta's blogs and Courtney Carver and her uh, simple year course. I mean, there are things that can help you, sure. but just don't think that you have to have anything to simplify your life. Yeah, I promise. Yeah, anyone listening to this right now, I promise you. Uh, if you have a million dollars in the bank, there isn't like this magic thing that you can buy that's going to help you do yeah. the work. I right. Mean, yeah. Yeah. And the same thing The you might find uh, enlightenment in a particular book or going back all the way to the Stoics and reading some of that stuff. Th those are experiences. And I think that's nice, but don't think you need a thing to simplify your life. I think it's one of the bigger problems with places like the container store. Yeah. People think they go there. I'm going to buy a bunch of things to organize my life. Well, that's yeah. part of the problem. The organizing is inherently problematic. And so David here uh, sums it up. He says, the biggest reason to go minimal, 
The talk of class politics and fetishization of minimalism. I got that word right first time. Nice. I, I, I just was reading it right here. I'm like, I'm not going to get the word fetishization right the first time I read it. But there but, you go. But there I, I got thought you said. I thought it was earlier in the... Like yeah. in the very beginning of the essay, maybe. Well, the, anyway. He he said something else at the beginning. He said... Fe, uh, it wasn't fetish, fetishization. <laughs> he said <laughs> fetishistic fat early oh, on in the oh, essay. Oh, Fe, oh. Fetishistic. And then I followed it up with my perfect execution of fetishization. <laughs> <laughs> you All couldn't right. plan this, folks. The, All right. the, the talk of class politics and fetishization of minimalism misses the biggest point. One that makes all those topics seem trivial. The planet is being ruined in our pursuit of more. A journal of industrial ecology study from earlier this year found household consumption is, quote, responsible for up to 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions and between 80 or 50 to 80% of total land, material, and water use. That's staggering. The uh, initiative, and, and so for me, uh, and, and I've said this before, but it's worth noting here, for me, environmentalism wasn't the, the core benefit of, of embracing a minimalist lifestyle, but it was a really nice benefit. If you consume less, you produce less waste. So even if you're not concerned about the environment, then you're still helping the environment by producing less waste. You're helping other, other people as well. Even if, you don't, even if you don't buy into that, you don't believe in, in climate change or whatever, Producing less waste is still a good thing. Everyone, I think everyone can get on board with that, right? Um, okay, and uh, let's see here. Uh, an initiative called Earth Overshoot Day calculated that on August 8th, 2016, we began to use more from nature than our planet can renew in the whole year. If we are to even dream of keeping the planet habitable, David writes, we must stop consuming so much stuff. Uh, you can argue that holding onto excess old stuff shares much of the blame with the new stuff. And I thought this was an interesting point, Ryan. Holding onto the stuff shares part of the blame, right? The infrastructure for storing our stuff, our humongous suburban homes, the $22 billion storage industry we support, are resource-hungry byproducts of our inabilities to let go of stuff. So we're, we're, we're facing other problems by our inability to let go. What minimalism does is makes this ecological imperative a choice rather than an imposition. And I think that's the important part. Often we'll, we'll hear people, yeah, I was forced to become a minimalist. Well, no, f minimalism is about intentionality. You can't be forced into being intentional. I was forced into meditating. That's not meditation, mm, right? Yeah, right. Uh, now you may your circumstances may may force you to be more deliberate with the resource you have, and I I think that deliberate use is great. I'm sorry if some situation forced you into becoming more of a a a, a intentional person, but I'm grateful for that outcome if you are becoming more intentional, regardless of of your resources. And so it says, don't be afraid of having less because it's pretty great. That's what he's saying about minimalism. Minimalism says, don't be afraid of having less. Because it's pretty great. And it's not a BS message either. Ample research attests that the best things in life aren't things. And he has a link to the research there. That relationships and rich experiences and expressing gratitude for what we have are the hallmarks of a good life. And stuff, whether it's a new iPhone or your spoon collection, is just stuff. Minimalism 
can be seen as a realignment of priorities and a preparation for a world when we cannot have everything we need when we want it. But minimalism is not an act of sacrifice, or rather, it's no more of a sacrifice than removing a malignant tumor. Sure, it hurts at first, but it's really good for you to let you live a lot longer and happier life. You won't miss it. I don't even pay attention to that. I mean, this, it was a beautiful article, but like, honestly, like I hate, I hate, um, reading an article that is arguing another article because yeah. at the end of the day, there is no argument against minimalism. It, it, I mean, at this point for me, it should be an apolitical issue. I totally agree with that. It's like, it is a, yeah, the, the world is suffering, uh, because of our consumption habits here in this country. Yeah. And uh, the Western world. In general. Yeah. There are third world countries who. I mean, kids are literally left on the street to die. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like, you know, someone consuming fast fashion, like that's a direct result, but, uh, it certainly is a byproduct of our consumption. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there is no, there is no good argument against minimalism. Like to me, the articles written are, Oh, well, it's easy for you to say because you've been rich. Whether you were poor or not, you've been rich, so you can say that money doesn't buy happiness. Money doesn't buy happiness has been... Thousands of years old. Yes, that, that, that saying, that advice is thousands of years old. And no matter what, no matter how you rebuttal that, it's always going to be something that we hear growing up. Money yeah. doesn't buy happiness. So, uh, yeah, it's... it's um. Yeah, it's a great article. I mean, yeah, he did such an awesome job of 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 kind of rebutting that stuff. But when I hear stuff like that, all I all I can really hear is, um, I want money so I can decide for myself. And sure. like that attitude is that is going to be um well that that's just not going to aid in living a meaningful life. Totally agree with that. I, I hope what this article accomplishes for some people is someone who says, I'm not willing to give minimalism a chance because I'm not rich. At least give it a chance. And but but see, they, I, but I would argue that that person doesn't want to give minimalism a chance, period. Right. right. I, I think in like, most cases that, that's probably true. They're that, using that as an excuse right. for why they don't want to give it. And it's not, I mean, even if you could show them a minimalistic life, like they are, and I don't know how to move people past that point. Uh-huh. I mean, this is what we try to do every single day. I don't have like a magic bullet answer to move people past that point. But anyone who has that argument is... It's a lame argument. Yeah, and I think I think the best way to move people past is you and I ha- have seen. You're right. There is not this silver bullet where you're like, uh, here, here's your answer. Here are the three steps. Right. It's uh, the people who thought we were crazy when you and I first embraced minimalism seven years ago or whatever that was, eight years ago uh, for me. It, it, it people thought I was crazy, thought I was suicidal because I was getting rid of stuff, and it took them years to come around because they saw the benefits and and they realized like, oh. You know, Josh has distanced himself from this discontented life and moved to a life that is more contented. And I had to leave some people behind in the process. I tried to drag a few of them kicking and screaming toward a simpler life and realized that didn't work. And, and the best way to get them to follow you is actually have them follow you if that's what they choose to do. Right. And so, no, it, it's not everyone is going to embrace minimalism tomorrow. And not everyone's going to embrace minimalism, period. But hopefully, hopefully yeah. if, if you feel that there is some barrier for you, realize that there isn't. And, and whether that's your finances or some other barrier of people in your life, whatever, uh, there aren't, like Ryan said, there, there aren't really good excuses. Uh, they're 
and and by the way, if there if you think you have a really good excuse, it's still an excuse at the end of the day. Yeah. And so uh, today, let's let's move on. Let's let's talk about some finances. We got some questions to to answer here. Hey, before we go to this voicemail, I do just want to say, like, I Josh, I would never, ever tell anyone, no matter where they fall on the socioeconomic scale, that they couldn't uh, they couldn't live a good life by living more deliberately or by living deliberately, not even more deliberately. Right. I mean, I would never tell anyone, no matter where they fall on the socioeconomic scale, that they couldn't. Uh, benefit from living a deliberate life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's disempowering. It first is. Off. I mean, and it's and, and unbeknownst to people who write articles like that, that you know will talk about how well you know minimalism doesn't work for poor people. They are discriminating against poor people. Yeah, like what are they? Whether they know it or not, like they are inadvertently discriminating against poor people, saying that oh well, this would never work for you because you don't have money. Yeah. I mean, how I would ne- that's horrible, man. Yeah, I totally agree. So, speaking of money, let's talk about how we can get our our finances in order. Our first question is from John in Chicago. I'm a physician, have a host of uh of school debt, um around $200,000. I think just shy of $200,000. I think it's around $180,000. Um plus about $40,000 in credit card debt. Uh, through a number of poor choices I've made throughout my life. I've been whittling away at it, um, but at the same time, I'm also self-employed and looking to start building up for retirement. My question is the following. Um, with such significant credit card debt, uh, $40,000 to $45,000 in credit card debt, some with APRs, uh, you know, 10, 11, 15, 16%, does it make sense to be putting away for retirement when the return on that investment is going to be so significantly, or excuse me, going to be significantly smaller uh, in the short term, or should all of my um, time and attention and finances basically be uh, put towards paying off my credit cards down to zero as fast as possible? I had been previously saving 20% of all of my paychecks, especially since I'm self-employed, to uh, cover uh, taxes at the end of the year. Um, But what I realized was I was putting this money in my savings account, and I was getting no value, but I was being charged, uh, you know, 11 to 16% on this credit card debt, um, which was taking probably more than I was saving. So I started, I took the money out of my savings. I have a, enough for a rainy day, about a thousand, two different accounts. Um, it's around 2000. And I've been trying to just radically pay down as much of my credit card debt as fast as possible. Um, would love to know your opinion about this and maybe just a general assessment or a general idea of where do you prioritize your finances? I know always save for retirement. I know always have some for a rainy day. But when you're faced with, um, you know, credit card debt with large percentages, should all of our resources, time, and energy be put towards paying that down as soon as possible in the short term and then really ramping up uh, the savings after that? John, my friend, when you told us at the very beginning about your student debt, you said, got about $200,000 in student debt. I don't know, maybe about one hundred and eighty. This is a red flag for me. Yeah. 
$180,000 is the same to you as $200,000. That's a $20,000 difference. That's, oh. a, that's a brand new Hyundai. <laughs> like that is a, that's a lot of money, man. So I think getting your head around exactly what you owe, uh, starting with that budget. I mean, you know, when you look at the minimalist.com slash freedom, the number one step on there to financial freedom is, is getting a budget. Yeah. Not knowing exactly what your debts are, giving or taking $20,000, that to me is a red flag. So I would just get clear on that. I'm not saying that like you're going about this the wrong way or anything like that. And I'm not even trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to move you to be, uh, to have a better idea of what your debts are, um, how much you're paying off each month, what those balances are every month. I think that's important. It, it, and like you said, the budget is a first step. So what, what Ryan's referencing here is an essay that we wrote last year. It's called Financial Freedom, Five Difficult Steps to Get Out of Debt, Create a Simple Budget, Plan for the Future, and Regain Control of Your Finances. The, the key word in that whole title, there's two of them, Ryan, freedom and difficult. difficult. Yeah, man. Yeah, because because this is simple advice. Whoa, get a budget. Right. It's really simple advice. <laughs> yeah, and well, it's a hard it's hard advice when you got to put a budget together for two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Or is it one eighty? We're we're not sure, right? right? And then he he also mentioned forty uh, about forty thousand dollars in credit card debt. So so getting when you're getting that together, I want you to know that you have forty one thousand three hundred and eighteen dollars and forty six cents in credit card debt. And because I want you to feel that pain. That's how you're mm. going to make a significant change here is if you can feel the pain. It reminds me of this thing that Seth Godin wrote very recently, Ryan, a really short essay. Uh, he said, it's almost impossible to sell the future. If you're trying to persuade someone to make an investment, buy some insurance, or support a new plan, please consider that human beings are terrible at buying these things. <laughs> and he said, what we're good at is now mm. right now yeah when we buy a stake in the future what we're actually buying is how it makes us feel today we move up all all the imagined benefits and costs of something in the future and experience them right now that's why it's hard to stick to a diet because celery tastes bad today i, I kind of like celery it's not bad <laughs> <laughs> it's got a lot of fiber in it, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, and no calories. That's such a good. I've, I have not read that essay. That is such a good point. Uh, so because because salary tastes bad today, and we can't easily experience feeling healthy in ten years. Like we mm. can't experience that that right. future self, right? That's why we make such dumb financial decisions too, because it's so tempting to believe magical stories about tomorrow. That's why you see the the lottery winner on on TV or whatever, and you're like, oh, that could be me. Now, if you want to buy a lottery ticket, I'm not going to yell at you for that. If you're in debt, I think it's a stupid thing to do, a really stupid thing to do, buy well, maybe, a lottery yeah, ticket. And maybe like, you know, 99% of the time, that's a stupid thing to do, but maybe like that's your only entertainment. $1 you spend right. on the Powerball each week, it's $4 a month. Yeah, well, Still probably not the best yeah. use of the money, but... It's still a terrible use of your money. I just don't want to make people feel better bad than buying if they're drugs. buying a lottery ticket. It is better than buying drugs. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, what kind of drugs <laughs> are we talking? <laughs> uh, if you want people to be smarter or more active or more, more generous about their future, you'll need to figure out how to make the transaction about how it feels right now. And so, John, what I want you to do... You need to associate more pain with this debt, man. You're feeling it. You're feeling a little bit of pain. I know it's overwhelming, but you, as Ryan said, with that budget, man, that budget is going to help you feel some of that pain. Yeah. Step number one, cut up your credit cards. Maybe you've done that already, but anyone out there right now who is in credit card debt and they still have credit cards, yeah, cut them up or at least put a little note on the back of the card that's like, hey, every time you spend this, 
you are you are uh, basically taking out a sixteen percent loan, which mm. is I mean that's I want to say that's worse than like a uh, like a a payday come here now cash your check it's not but it's pretty i mean it, but, but i mean it's close to like i mean maybe that's a little bit worse but i mean it's just as bad i guess is what i'm saying they're both horrible decisions horrible horrible decisions it's like you're going out to a meal and let's say that you're like oh you know what like i know i don't have the money in my account but i'll just pay this hundred dollars from my credit card you're not paying a hundred dollars you're paying 116 dollars right and then if you don't pay that 116 bucks off the following month well then you're paying an additional 16 percent. so it would basically be like you going to a restaurant and them saying hey we'll go ahead and give you this meal now at a 16 percent interest rate if that's how the waiter pitched it to you yeah you'd probably say no under yeah or, or if, if you're like hey how much is this ten dollar meal um, it's, it's $11 and 14 cents. Wait a minute. Right. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, oh, plus tax. And, and so it, it's, so it's, uh, I think Dave Ramsey calls it a stupid tax, uh, paying interest uh, on your credit cards. You're paying the stupid tax. And so, yeah, let's talk about the budget real quick since you brought that up, Ryan. So, so the first thing we talk about, and again, you can find all this at the minimalist.com slash freedom or in the show notes to this episode. Uh, we, we talk about breaking things into categories, the need, want, like list. You want to write down every expense that you have, whether it's your food, your housing, your utilities, your insurance, health insurance, your car or cars, uh, gas, your transportation, your clothes, your credit card, your phone bills, your internet bill, your pets, uh, entertainment. Everything. Yeah, every everything that you have, your... your um, uh, lottery tickets, everything yeah. you're spending money on, right? And and, and triple check that list uh, with your significant other or friend or family member. Make sure that you have everything on that list in those three categories. And uh, I won't go into detail on how you differentiate between need, want, and like. You can read all the details there. And then the second thing you want to do with a budget is you want to give yourself some boundaries. You need to give every dollar a destination at the beginning of a month. Uh, by establishing these these boundaries, you won't uh, you really won't worry about what you can and can't purchase because the money at the beginning of the month is already assigned at the beginning of the month, so it can't be spent mid month. It already has a home throughout the month, and so you you won't have any extra money for that. Uh, another thing I do with those boundaries is I with that money I I assign to different places when I was getting out of debt, and I do the like, the envelope system or whatever. Um, I, I would. I would make sure that you know, I couldn't. I could rob from one envelope to pay another, but that was it. So, so do I want to not have food later this month, if, so I can buy a new pair of jeans? That's a decision I had to make. I just wasn't going to get into any more debt. And that's another thing we didn't even talk about at this point, right? But he has to. Well, you sort of talked about with the credit card thing. He has to agree not to get in any more debt. I understand why you got into student loan debt, and you're you're a physician, uh, which means you know, which means you're a rich person. So minimalism will work for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but you're a physician and you're not a rich person. You're broke. You are freaking broke. Which is oh, so minimalism won't work for him then. Oh uh, man, because he's broke, it won't work. Yeah. Good grief. Uh, so, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go off on a tangent here. A different essay here. Eleven signs you might be broke. This is also <laughs> on our website. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You might be. This is like the the Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck. You might be a, thing. You might be a broke. You might be person. a minimalist if patent pending. No. That's a good one. <laughs> That'd be a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> Someone writes that. Uh, tweet us. Anyway, uh, you might be broke if, number one, you are living paycheck to paycheck, which, John, you certainly are doing. If you're spending every dollar uh, you take home, you are, by definition, broke. More than 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck with little or no savings, which means that, right off the bat, at least three-quarters of us are broke. You might be broke, number two, if, uh, if you have credit card debt. John, you have credit card debt. There's no such thing 
as good debt. I don't know, Josh. What if I get a 1% loan and then I invest that into the stock market and I see a 6% return over a year and I pay that loan off by the end of the year? And Yeah, there's no such thing as good debt. Oh. <laughs> I mean, there, there are there are debts that are much better than other debts. Exactly. For sure. So like you said, the, the payday loan is sort of the most insidious of yeah. all of these, right? Because some of them are as high as 3,500%. Now, there have been some laws been put in place in certain states and, and federal laws as well that have limited the the um, predatory nature of some of these places, but they're still really, really terrible. Sure. Instead of 3,500%, maybe it's 350%. Right. It's still awful. There are exceptions. Well, I don't even want to say exceptions to the rule, but I mean, there are exceptions where, yeah, like if you're going to buy a house, yeah, there, it's much better to put down 20% 10-year loan rather than taking out a 30-year loan with 0% down. I mean, yeah, there are certainly better debts than others. And, you know, we've had uh, at this point, countless number of readers reach out to us and tell, tell us how they've leveraged uh, debt uh -huh. to, to make, you know, to make money, which is great, but that's still a risk. Yeah. And yeah. I would still argue that like, it's not, it, it's still not good debt. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a game that you're playing that you are leveraging and great. You know, the people who have wrote us have won, uh, I know people who have played that game and have lost. Exactly, exactly. And it's not a game I'm willing to play anymore. The The debtor is always slave to the lender. Mm. Uh, number three, you might be broke if you have student loan debt. John, you have student loan debt. Uh, read our lips. There's no such thing as good debt. Number four, you might be broke if you have a monthly car payment. <clears throat> That is debt. Isn't it funny that like we're like, dude, we're programmed to have a car payment, right? Like we will. And I'm not saying like, you know, no one is. Um, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad for having payments like that's not it at all. Right. But I kind of uh, want to feel a little bad. <clears throat> I want to feel some pain. No, I mean, a little I bit of pain. pain. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because, you'd, yeah, of course, you know, we'd rather see people have no payments at all. But at the end of the day, like we are programmed to budget for a car payment and right. for a house payment. Right. And budget for debt. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. There's something that doesn't sit well with me there. Yeah. It becomes part of your lifestyle and yeah. you become tethered to it. And then, like I said a moment ago, the debtor is always slave to the lender. You become t tethered to that lifestyle. Number five, you might be broke if your income dictates your lifestyle. So that's exactly what you were getting at there, Ryan. It should it should be the other way around. We should work to earn enough money to live, not live to earn enough money to buy crap that we don't need. Until he breaks free from consumerism, the hoarder is slave to his hoard. Mm. Let's see here. Number six, you might be broke if you aren't saving for the future. We know, we know. You'll start saving tomorrow one day yeah but of course tomorrow never comes because tomorrow will be today tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow will never ever be today <laughs> not with that attitude <laughs> ergo begin today your life literally yeah. depends on it uh, and so uh, back to what john was asking about you know, should i've been setting aside 20 percent of my income and, and saving it uh you don't want to, if you're in debt, no, you absolutely, you want to pay off your debt. You don't want to save 20% of your income. Here's what I'm going to recommend. Here's what I, I, I did personally. Set aside $20 a month just so you can build up the habit. You can get that momentum. You're not actually going to be saving a lot of money, but I, you can do this. You could do it in a savings account if you want. I, I invested mine in index funds. Uh, I use a company called Betterment. 
which we can talk about later and, and why I use it. And you can actually see my exact net worth on on our website down to the penny. Well, uh, down to the penny, at least as of last summer, which is the last time I updated it. So yeah, you'll be able to take a look at that. But uh, yes, you want to set aside $20 a month, not because you're you're investing in your future, in that, but you are building up that habit. And I think that's what's really important, building up that muscle, that investment muscle, so you can begin to save once you've paid off your, your debt. You already have that habit. The groove in, in your daily habit will, will be set up. So um, let's see here. If you, if you aren't saving for the future, uh, you'll start saving tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. All right. Okay. Number seven, number seven, you might be broke if you're not healthy. Ooh, unhealthy equals depression. Yes. If you are unhealthy, statistics show that you're likely depressed. If you can't enjoy life, no matter how wealthy you are, then you're broke in a different way. You're broken. The richest man in the graveyard might be might have the most lavish tombstone, but he's still dead. Number eight, you might be broke if your relationships are suffering. Too often we forsake the most important people in our lives in search of money and ephemeral pleasures. We believe that our loved ones will always be around or that, quote, they'll understand. But when you're careless with something for long enough, it breaks. I think that's important, Ryan. You and I, especially me, I, I forsook all the people in my 20s because eh, they'll understand and and I'm out being successful I'm making money but if you're careless with something for long enough it breaks and that's what happened in my marriage right it, it broke and I was careless for a long time uh, number nine you might be broke if you argue over money oh troubled mm. relationships tend to end for one of two reasons arguments over money or arguments over sex or both even if the relationship doesn't end it is difficult to grow if y'all are constantly bickering about finances. P.S. If you're argu arguing over sex or the lack thereof, then something's broken. Number 10. You might be broke if you're not growing. It doesn't matter how much cash you earn. If you're not growing, you're dying. We feel most alive when we cultivate a passion, drudge through the drudgery, and live our lives with purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Number 11. Last, uh, last one here. You might be broke if you don't contribute as much as you'd like. Your worth isn't determined by your net worth. Real worth comes from contributing beyond yourself in a meaningful way. It was Martin Luther King who said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Giving is living, and it's much easier to give when you're no longer worried about money. And then to summarize it here, being broke is okay. So John, being broke is okay. Being broke without a plan to break that cycle is not. You see, given the above criteria, we've all been broke at some point in our lives. Everyone has been broke or broken. True, we all need money to live, but you are not the contents of your wallet. What's more important than income is how we spend the resources we have. We personally know broke people who make six or even seven figures a year. I can say that looking back at some of the people we work with, Ryan, knowing broke people who were ostensibly rich, mm -hmm. but they were broke. We also know families who live on $25,000 a year, family of, of three here that I have a link to, but who aren't broke at all because they live within their means. They live deliberately. Real wealth, security, and contentment comes not from the trinkets we amass, but from how we spend the one life we've been given. So...
you can uh, you can take a look at that. Back back to John with with your budget. Once you once you've put a budget together and you've set up some boundaries and everyone on your team, you you're, you're, whether it's you have a significant other or your friends, and then of course you want to adjust accordingly. You, you're going to have to change your budget as your circumstances change. And the, the last thing I'm going to recommend for John is you mentioned having a safety net. I think that's great. Long term, you want to build up a larger safety net, but having uh, uh, 500 to a thousand dollars for emergencies is great. You may need more than that, but, uh, you'll want a much bigger safety net once you get out of debt, but you will want to get out of debt before you, before you do that. All right. Uh, one last thing, John, I'm going to recommend for you. Uh, actually, we're going to give you a copy of our book essential. There's an entire chapter on finances in that book, uh, that broke essays in there, but there's some other stuff about finances and financial planning and retirement and a bunch of other stuff that I think will help point you in the right direction. Sean, if you could reach out to him and give him a copy of that book, or if you would prefer the audio book version of that, uh, if you could give him an audible download code, I would appreciate that. Our next question is from Jimmy. Jimmy in Denison, Texas. My question is in regards to getting out of debt, but in my case, we have a majority of our debt is medical debt. Um, we already pay eight to nine hundred dollars every single month for medical insurance. Uh, we even carry a flex spending card so that we would have the money to go ahead and pay for like the copays and deductibles and and uh, co-insurances. But it seems like there's never enough money to pay for the cost after the insurance. Me and my wife both work full-time. Uh, we receive potential bonuses every single month. We have a little side venture business uh, to try to bring in a stream of, of revenue uh, to help us. Um, we're doing better than we ever have before, but it's not. Uh, it's definitely not the savings in our, that we have that we'd like. Uh, we don't have the three to six months of income saved up. And... We're just trying to figure out, you know, how to tackle this and in a way. I know that you guys talk a lot about credit card debt and loans, student loans, and I have those as well. But the medical debt it seems to be what's holding, uh, you know, uh, a lot of our debt. Uh, if you could get back to me, you know, and, and at least uh, maybe give me some tips that you guys have. Ryan, I love that, that word he used, man. He said financial clutter. You, you, wow. and, you yeah. and I in the past have talked about internal clutter or emotional clutter or spiritual clutter. But really, that's what this episode is about is financial clutter. Maybe we should like rename this episode. Financial, financial clutter. clutter. We I can't. Like there are only one word episodes. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's the law. We'd be such hypocrites if we... <laughs> You're not a real episode. minimalist, Ryan. <laughs> you use two words. Financial clutter, we'll make it one word. Oh, there you we go. We make a lot of things one word. We do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's compound conjunctions, I call it. Anyway, I think that's a spot-on term here, Jimmy. You're talking about financial clutter. So back to your, your monthly expense, your your eight to $900 a month on, on your medical expenses or your insurance or both. Uh, get really clear on that as we as we talk to John about you want to know exactly how much money is going out because otherwise as as Dave Ramsey says that you're you're gonna have too much month at the end of your money and <laughs> and and that's exactly that's exactly what will happen now uh, I'll just say first off congratulations you said you're doing better than you ever have done that's awesome so acknowledge that let's be grateful for that right you're experiencing some pleasure from doing better the pain's coming from you don't feel like it's good enough yet. You, you have a little side venture. 
what I'm going to recommend is something that, so here's what I did when I was trying to pay off some credit card debt. There was a period of time where I delivered pizzas. Now, I wouldn't do that same thing now because there's other technologies around, whether it's a, a company like, <clears throat> like Uber or, or Lyft or, yeah, I've heard Gary V talk about this a lot recently. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, he has a, a really good podcast. I think it's just called the Gary V Experience. And uh, it comes out every day. He is a real New York hustler kind of dude. He runs a, a big uh, ad agency. And while I certainly don't agree with him on advertising and a lot of stuff, he uh, he's very inspiring with with respect to uh, getting out of debt or getting people out of bad situations. And I've heard him talk a lot. He's doing something, Ryan, called the 2017 Challenge. And, and what he's doing is he's encouraging people to make 20000 I think, what is it, $20,170 this year off of stuff they own in their house. So oh, wow. things you already own, you can sell on eBay. And it, you know, he, the stat he uses is five, you have five to $15,000 worth of stuff in your house. He thinks you can flip it to make over $20,000 of stuff if you're willing to really start parting with, with those things. So Bex and I, this month, we're playing the minimalism game. We're, we're donating a lot of stuff. And it is going to get hard really, really quick. So we're just, as, as of this recording, it's the 7th of February. We're seven days into the game. Now, we're playing as a family, doing a little bit different. For the people that know about the minimalism game, it's a 30-day minimalism game. You can find it at theminimalists.com slash game. I won't beat you over the head with the description. But you know, we're, we're playing it as a family instead of like, Going against each other, we don't have very much stuff. If you take a, a tour of our home, it's like, what? how are you going to get rid of? I'm impressed that you guys have made it through day seven. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting rid of Ella's stuff. It's fine. <laughs> We're playing the minimalism game with our daughter's yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah she's nude and, and doesn't have any more clothes or toys. But oh, my Man, goodness. do we feel great. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> don't go do that. Yeah, and um, it's really been hard because we had to get rid of our food the last couple of days. No, um, you know this is only funny to you and I. Right? I know. <laughs> anyway, you can find you. Uh, a lot of people have been playing along with us uh, on her Instagram account. It's just at Minimal Wellness. You can see photos that she's putting up every day. Anyway, we're getting rid of stuff, and I'm realizing that like eBay became one of my best friends when I was getting out of debt. eBay, Craigslist, selling stuff that was over twenty bucks. I'm like, I can I can make money off of this. And Gary Vee's like, man, you can go to the dollar store and buy. He he had a story of one guy. Who bought? I think it was like eight thousand dollars worth of stuff from this dollar store, just and, and was able to sell them for five bucks a pop uh, because he had the eBay app right on his phone and was like, "Oh my goodness, do you have all of these? These yeah, I, I can buy this thing for a dollar and sell it for five. And while I don't want you to go into debt to do something like that, that would be stupid. But if, if the point being is. You have things that you can sell right now online that you're no longer getting value from to start get your way out of debt. And then you can also supplement your income temporarily. Feel that temporary pain, Jimmy, with Uber or Lyft or delivering pizzas or something else that is going to help you get out of debt. Because once you get out of debt, that freedom is going to taste way better than, than the, the passive sort of uh, extra hour or so that you had. And, and that's the nice thing about any of the, and we're not sponsored by Uber or Lyft or any other company like that. But the nice thing is you can, <laughs> maybe you're not. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so the nice thing is you can turn that on for an hour or two hours or whatever. And I've talked to a bunch of different Uber drivers and Lyft drivers who were like, yeah, I, I, I do this for an hour or two hours or 10 hours on my day off. And, and I get to dictate my own schedule. And I think that's great. That'll help you pay off your debt. And, and if you do that enough, you, you'll really start to develop that plan. So 
Ryan mentioned with with John earlier, you got to have that budget. You got to have a plan. So get that need want like list together, and then uh, or the other plan could be Dave Ramsey's baby steps, right? Which he he talks about in in his book. Yeah, it sounded to me like when he was talking about the medical debt, that sounded like probably the largest debt that he has right now. Yes. And Dave Ramsey would tell you to start with a sm- either the smallest debt or like the biggest interest loan. Uh, I'm forgetting so you, you, the no, you would say start with your smallest step. debt. It's so the smallest it's debt. It's called Regar- the debt okay. snowball. So regardless of what the interest rate is on your debts, unless there's something that's going to send you into bankruptcy, then you'll want to tackle that first. But otherwise, uh, yeah, you start with the smallest debt first. It's a debt snowball. So if you have like 16 different things, right? Yeah. So starting with the largest debt, like that's going to be the most difficult thing is to pay right. out. Yeah. That's you still have to pay your minimums on it, obviously, right. whatever your minimums might be, but then everything, every extra dollar you have, you throw out your smallest debt. Uh, Sean, I don't, we bought a case of Dave Ramsey's book, uh, total money makeover. So if we have uh, a copy of that, if not, he can have my personal copy. If you'd send it to him, I, I'd appreciate that. Uh, Dave also has something else, Ryan, that, that I, I like, I wish I would have had, cause I used to use that envelope system that he recommends oh, in yeah. total money makeover. But yeah. now he has, uh, an app. app. Yeah. It's a free app on your phone. It's called Every- Everything These Days. And he spent a couple million dollars putting this app together, and mm. it's a free app. And it, That's awesome. It does a great job. It's called Every Dollar. We'll put a link to that in, in the show notes as well. But so, Jimmy, like, don't – yeah, I was just going to say, Jimmy, like, don't stress yourself out about making an extra 20 grand this year. I mean, if you can, great. Uh, but, you know, to, just to that point, start with start with 100 bucks a week. So 20 grand a year is about 400 bucks a week. That's that's like $20,800 is what that would be. Uh-huh. Uh, if you can start with $100 a week, that's an extra, you know, $5,200 in a year. I'm certain that that would help you. So if $20,000 is like way too big of a number for you to start thinking like, these guys are crazy. I don't have yeah. $20,000 worth of stuff in my house to sell. You may or may not. Uh, but yes, then start with a smaller number. But you know, doing Uber, I know you can make an extra hundred bucks a week doing Uber. We're not telling Easy. you, yeah, we're not telling you to like, you know, drive yourself crazy and work hundred hour weeks for the rest of your life. But sometimes when 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 we find ourselves in situations like this, we do have to uh, deprive ourselves of some time. Uh, so we can, you know, uh, temporarily uh, do that so we can get ourselves out of a hole. So yeah, maybe it's not 20 grand. Maybe that's not the number, but uh, maybe it's 5,000 bucks. Maybe and it's just a hundred bucks a week, but just start there. Start yeah. with 50 bucks a week. We'll get inspired. And I, th- I think you'll find out really quickly. If you go lo- look at the 2017 challenge that Gary V has out there, look at all the people on Instagram who are like, I had no idea I had $20,000 worth of stuff in my house and sold it all in three weeks. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was able to pay off my debt or I was able to start my business or my side venture, or I, I was able to do something. What is your outcome, Jimmy? You got to ask you, you got to know what that question is. It sounds to me like your outcome is becoming debt free, becoming financially free as well. And if you know that outcome, you need to be able to associate enough pleasure with that and enough pain with the state you're being in right now that you are willing to work some crazy hours temporarily, not in perpetuity. Like Ryan said, you don't want to you don't want to do it forever that that would be misery that'd be despair but if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel that's what your outcome is then be willing to sacrifice temporarily not long-term sacrifice but temporary sacrifice so you can get to to where you want to be in the future anything else before we move on to another question yeah i think once you get to that place the most important piece of advice is don't get back into debt Mm, yes yeah that's that is key i think too often we get out of debt and ah just be one credit card. I'll, I'll just have one one credit card. And then it's like, you know what? That jet ski is looking really nice. Summer's right around. The, you know, I could probably pay it off by the end of the year, right? Are you getting me a jet ski for Christmas? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna put it on my credit card. <laughs> what is that from the South Park episode? Yeah, <laughs> we'll put it on my credit card. The impression of the the average American was eyes wide open with uh, "I'm going to put it on my credit card." Yeah. That's sad. That's the rest of the world's impression on us, but it's true. Uh, all right, our next question is from Nathan, who's also in Texas. He is in College Station, Texas. Uh, I know you guys went through a corporate phase and you know, around 27, 28 is when you really started this minimalist movement. Um, but as far as your advice to me, I'm actually um, engaged to the one of my dreams and we're getting married in July. Um, so we are currently about to spring into uh, the job market, um, get work, stuff like that done, get married. Um, and this is something really interesting that I'm really interested in, um, and I have yet to talk to her about it. Um, we'll talk to her soon. But what is your advice to us as we go into, um, you know, the real world beyond a college um, as far as, like, how to handle the transition from financials, you know, because I have debt coming out of college, and how to look at, you know, things in terms of where we can live, why should we live there, things like that. So. Um, I know it's a very general question, but um, financially, what would look like a minimalist approach coming out of college? First off, thanks for your honesty, uh, Nathan. Uh, (laughs) First off, congratulations. Uh, You're getting married really soon. And and, um, I want to say thank you for your honesty because you you said you're yet to talk to your fiance about the money stuff. And to me, that's a huge red flag because that's what most of us forget to do before mm-hmm. we get into some sort of relationship. We don't talk about money. Why? Because it's a sensitive subject. Yeah, I think that's important too, man, because when you marry this girl and when she marries you, her debt is your debt. Yeah, and hopefully your you don't debt have is that. her debt. And there are you know some people out there who are married and they keep their debts separate, which is fine, uh, but they've talked that out beforehand. Or maybe they haven't, and it's caused contention. But either way, um, when you – well, legally, her debt is your debt. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah, so and, w- whether how you view it or not, the, that is the law. And her income is your income. Your income is, is her income. And I find the best way to treat it is to treat it that way. If you're going to be, if you're going to be married and, and you want to be, be in a happy marriage, you, you have to be an open book. And, and quite literally here with respect to the finances, you, you need to be an open book. So the first thing you need to do is sit down, have a conversation with her uh, about finances. And it's not going to be just one, one conversation, right? It's going to be multiple conversations and monthly budget meetings. And hopefully you have the same ideas about debt. You're not going to get into debt. Uh, you're, you're, so so here's, here's some, I guess, advice I would give my 22, 23-year-old self. I'm not sure how old you are, Nathan, but I guess you're, you're right around there. And you're asking all the right questions at all the right times. Questions like that when I was that age. Yeah, you're setting yourself up for success. So. The questions I was asking at 22 is, how much, how much debt payments can I afford? Right. right, right. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah. How much can I afford? And, and that just really meant like, can I make more money so I can afford more yeah. debt? How many debt payments can I afford to bring into my life? And so, so here's, here's the advice I would give to my younger self, and hopefully some of this will, will help with you and your fiancé, Nathan. Uh, what are your values? What are her values? And the reason that question is, is so important, it's going to help you identify where are you going and where are you going there together, and can you get there together financially, right? And then what's important to you? What makes you happy? What makes her happy? What makes her angry? What makes her so pissed that she wants to do something about it? What makes you so pissed that you want to do something about it? 
those that will help you identify like after college what's the direction i'm going to take right a am i just going to have a job working for someone so like ryan i can make those debt payments or am i going to have a career now here's what i'll actually say i think a career is one of the most dangerous things you can have and, and the reason i say that and, and it's not just semantics here i delineate between a job a career and a mission and I think it's okay to have a job. We all have to pay the bills. And sometimes our mission in life is different from what we do to earn a paycheck. Sometimes we, we have this thing called a career that means quite often we'll sacrifice our values to make, you know, we'll put money first basically. And we'll sacrifice and forsake the things that are actually most important. I had a really great career at one point, Ryan, but it didn't align with my values. In fact, it covered up my values to the point where I didn't know uh, the direction I, I needed to go in to to be passionate, to be content, to live more meaningfully. And so the third thing you can have is a mission. What is your mission in life? And and I think figuring out what makes you happy or what makes you angry can help you maybe identify that mission. It doesn't mean you have to do that to earn a, a paycheck, but if you can, now's a good time to try that out, especially if you have no debt. So the next thing I'd say is make sure you don't get into debt. If you don't have any debt right now, don't get into debt. If you do have debt, pay it off, including those student loans. Work really, really, really hard to pay off that 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 uh, student loan debt. And the last thing I would ask you and, and your fiance is who's the person you want to become? Who do you want to be? Where do you, where do you see your 25-year-old self at this point? What is that person doing in an ideal world? Do they have a lot of debt? Do they have a bunch of student loans? Are they working a career that they don't love? I doubt it. I really doubt that that's the direction you want to go in. And so don't go in that direction. Who's the person that you want to become? And then shape your life around that. Of course, that's not going to be easy. It's going to be simple, though, if you make some, some simple choices with your life. And uh, the last thing, Ryan, we could probably talk about from, from me is you want it now is the perfect time so, to start planning for retirement for them. They're just getting out of college. Once you pay off that debt, any debt you have, or even now, if you're going to put at least 20 bucks a month away so you build up that muscle, as we talked to John about earlier, you want to start planning for the long term. You want to plan for your future. And so there's an essay I'm going to recommend, and I'll read a little bit about it, and hopefully Ryan and I can riff on it uh, a bit. It's on our website. It's from uh, last year. It's called Retirement Planning, How to Plan for a Successful Retirement. And in here, you'll see screenshots of my exact finances. And Ryan followed a, a very similar plan as well. And the essay goes like this. Youth is wasted on the young. Often, money is too. Back in my corporate days, when I managed scores of retail stores and hundreds of employees, I stressed the importance of planning for retirement, as well as saving for future goals with every person I hired. Before that, or before the start of their very first shift, I would sit down with each new team member and show them how to save for retirement without stress, worry, complexity, or pain. Within a few minutes, I could literally see the difference in their physiological in their physiology as trepidation drained from their facial features and after we spent 30 minutes examining their options conf confidence began to take over once they realized planning for retirement is much simpler than they thought this was something ryan that that was really interesting to me i remember most people who worked for us or with us who were in their 20s didn't even think about their 401k or whatever 
because it was so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to want to think about that. I, I'm just going to put it off because I, I don't want to have to deal with that. Right. Yeah. And, and what I found is if you just take 30 minutes to at least think about it and automate some stuff, then you're going to change your future self's life mm-hmm. and you're going to feel good about that now. So what Seth Godin talked about making decisions that feel good now, you make that decision to start investing in your future self, you're going to feel great. And I'm not going to read this whole, this whole essay cause it's pretty long. Um, but I'll, I'll just go through the, the, there are some retirement myths that I was able to debunk in, in this es- essay. So, uh, before I get, well, let's see myth number one, I'm too old to save for retirement. Well, that obviously doesn't apply to Nathan, right? He's, he's young, right? We'll get to that in a second, though. Uh, myth number two is I'm too young to save for, for retirement. <laughs> and so I spent a whole paragraph debunking the, the I'm too old to save for retirement. Actually, I, I like, I like, I'll read this real quick. Um, I frequently hired employees who were older than I was, often in their 40s and 50s, with no retirement savings plan. So if that's you and you're listening to this, um, then listen up. Fear had long ago set in, and they figured it was too late. They were stuck. They had missed their opportunity. It's not true. While it's true that you're better off starting at age 25, or Nathan at age 22, or wherever you're at, it's better to start at age 25 than age 50. It's also true that you're better off starting at age 50 than, say, age 70. Then again, 70 is a better start than 90, isn't it? The past is the past. We must stop peering at the rear view and instead look ahead toward the horizon. As long as you're still breathing, it's never too late to start. It's never too early either. So that's myth number two. I'm too young to save for retirement. Retirement Too young? And by the way, that's so, so many people who work for me would say, like, eh, I'll worry about that when I'm older. I'll worry about that when I'm 30. <laughs> yeah, I saw my... Uh uh, I'll say a relative. Uh-huh. I don't want to like say what relative. My friend slash relative slash reader slash listener. Yes. <laughs> uh, long story short, they waited till they were like 38, 39, like really start saving for retirement. And I just remember the payment. It was like five or 600 bucks a month they had to save uh-huh. in order to have enough retirement by, you know, 60 or 65. Yeah. But dude, that's a lot of money. Yeah. To save every single month. And like you said, they had to save it. Yeah, it wasn't and, a choice. Right. And I remember uh, they were, and whatever the number was by the time they got to 65, I'm, you know, I'm certain that someone could save 20 bucks a month. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, and still um, have a decent savings. Uh, but, but regardless, what I'm saying is, is that if they were started at 22, that payment would have been much, much, much less. Absolutely. In fact, here's a, here's a stat for you. So here's what I said. Too young? Are you insane? If you're younger than 30, you have it made. Young people, no matter your tax bracket, have a significant opportunity to become truly wealthy thanks, thanks to the power of compound interest. So listen to this. this. Hopefully, Nathan, this stat blows your mind and sticks with you and, and convinces you to start uh, investing in your future right now. So someone who invests $25,000 by age 25 with a 12% rate of return will have more than $2 million by age 65, even even if he or she doesn't add another dollar after, after age, age 25. Yeah, that's crazy. $25,000, you'll have more than $2 million, even if you don't... Uh, uh, invest another dollar. Conversely, if that same person waits like your friend slash relative slash enemy did, um, uh, if that person waits until age 30, he or she will have to contribute more than three times as much to achieve the same outcome. What's the lesson here? 
compound interest is the best way to grow your money over the long haul. So start while you're young. To visually illustrate the difference between age 25 and 30, there's a, a chart in, in the essay there at theminimalists.com slash retirement. Here's myth number three. I heard this one all the time. I don't make enough money to save for retirement. Not with that attitude. <laughs> Actually, there is no reason you shouldn't retire a millionaire. And I, when I first wrote this, people got mad Like when I, when I first said that. And then so I just back it up with some numbers here, right? These aren't the numbers. I'm not the first person to say this, obviously. There are plenty of financial investors. So that's right. Virtually everyone, even minimum wage earners, has the opportunity to be a millionaire when they retire. It sounds to be good, too good to be true, but the math proves otherwise. And here's some math for you. A 20, we're, we're filing this back under the math section of podcasts, right, Sean? <laughs> Uh, a 25-year-old who is there like a, is there actual math section on iTunes? You think? <laughs> I'm sure there are math like podcasts. a math and science section. Maybe can you, I don't can you know. imagine listening to a math podcast? Some people can. Some you actually really like math. Maybe you'd enjoy a math podcast. Uh, maybe you'll enjoy this one then, Ryan. <laughs> a 25-year-old who sets aside only $23 per week, $23 per week, will retire with more than a million dollars. Wow if the money is invested properly. And I give a 12% rate of return there. Okay, so maybe you're How not- How do they do that? Do they buy gold? <laughs> 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 well, if I had a million dollars, first thing I'm gonna do is buy a bunch of gold. <laughs> gold chains, gold watches. Yeah, man, gold figaros. <laughs> yes, <laughs> 1998 called. Um, anyway, uh, okay. So maybe you're not 25 anymore. Me either. That's right. Us older folks simply need to adjust accordingly. And then uh, I use something called Betterment, and there's a better. I have a link here to a Betterment investment and retirement calculator to help you understand exactly how much money you need to save based on your age and financial objectives. Uh, let's see here. So you can find that that calculator in the essay as well. Myth number four: But inflation will hurt my retirement nest egg. Uh huh. This is the only true. This is the only myth that is partially true. However, the truth here is irrelevant. Uh, while it is true that $100 10 years from now will probably possess less buying power than $100 today, the flip side of that coin is also true and considerably more important. Your $100 10 years from now will be worth infinitely more than your friend's $0 that he invested. In fact, solid investments are the only way to outpace inflation. It is better to invest your $100 than to keep, in the, keep it in the bank or uh, under your mattress, right? So yes, you want to invest, but even just putting it in a savings account is better than doing nothing at all. Yeah, I mean, at least you get like a 1% return on that. Yeah, and even if you got a 0% return, yeah. it's better than not saving it at all. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you want to do something with your money for sure. Uh, myth number five, I'd rather spend my money on something else. When intentions are good, this excuse occasionally sounds like the most compelling reason to avoid saving for the future. True, we sometimes cling selfishly to money, using our income to purchase superfluous trinkets of ostensible success, new cars, shiny gadgets, accoutrements of consumerism. But frequently, we want to use our money to contribute beyond ourselves, to charities and nonprofits and loved ones in need. Contributing to others is certainly admirable, and I believe that giving is living. So I want you to contribute generously. But I found the best way to keep to, to help others is to help yourself first. The best way to give generously is what? To have more to give to other people. Investing in yourself first helps you flex your giving muscle. 
There's a reason airlines tell you to secure your own oxygen mask before helping others. If it's easier to breathe, it's easier for you to help people in need. And I think that's important. I want you to be able to give. I want you to be able to give generously. Ryan and I have been fortunate enough these last few years to be able to give very generously because we got our houses in order first. And I think that's important. We've done everything from from fund high schools to build elementary schools to build orphanages uh, to contribute to the the victims of of the Orlando shooting, thousands of dollars. And and, uh, we've been able to do that because we got our houses in order first. And I think that's really important. Myth number six, the stock market isn't safe. Translation, you don't understand the stock market. That's okay. I don't completely understand the stock market either. Not intimately any, anyway. I'm not a financial advisor, nor do I play one on the internet. The only people who must have an advanced understanding of the stock market's intricacies are stockbrokers, day traders, and fund managers. Rather, uh, rather than allocating several hours a day to learn the nuances of mutual funds, index funds, and individual stocks, I choose to use an investing service that takes the guesswork out of it. It's true that any investment introduces risk into the equation, but long-term investing in the stock market has proven to be the best way to grow your retirement savings. Over the last 25 years, including, and this is an important part here, including 2008 steep decline and subsequent Great Recession, the market has averaged a rate of return of nearly 11%. Given when you account for 1928's Great Depression, the stock market has averaged 9% growth over the past 100 years. And I have a source here. So investing in in the market is the most stable, good growth investment one can make in the long term, especially when using online tools that help you outperform the market, many of which are uh, discussed in this essay. So I discuss, uh, I use something called Betterment. There's also a company called Wealthfront. And if you're overseas, uh, later on in the added value portion, I'm going to talk about some other companies if you're overseas that might help you out with uh, your overseas investing because the company I use uh, is, is not available overseas. And, and Sean is salivating right now because we get so many questions about this. Uh, anyway, uh, last myth I have here, Ryan, is myth number seven. I don't have enough time or knowledge to manage my retirement savings. It's true that I will likely never have as much financial wisdom as the experts, but that's precisely why we must seek out tools developed by trusted, reputable experts. Although I'm usually a do-it-yourself kind of guy, I don't DIY my investment strategy. Rather, I did the research and found online, invest- found online investment tools that allow me to control my money without being overly controlling. I don't want to constantly scrutinize my investments. In fact, I'm going to encourage most people, when you start setting aside money, the market's going to go down. You're going to put money in, and at some point it's going to go down, you're going to freak out. Stop looking at your investments. Put them there. Look at it once a year if you have to, but other than that, leave it alone. You drive yourself crazy looking every day. Yeah, and and the, the this one day you'll be like, oh my god, I just made seven hundred bucks, and then the next day you're gonna be like, oh my god, I just lost a thousand bucks. I mean, you're gonna put yourself on a roller coaster. And and there's science behind this, Ryan, that proves that the pain always feels worse than the pleasure of it. So you can say, oh, oh, yeah. oh my god, I made a thousand dollars. That feels cool. All right, that was neat, and you move on. But then you're like, oh my god, I lost a thousand dollars this week. Oh, I should pull my money out, I, but it, I don't know what to do. And, and you, the pain is much more acute. And so uh, keep that in mind. So in, in the essay, I go through the tools I use. You can find literally screenshots of all my investment accounts. I, I invest in the, to five different buckets. I'm sorry, four different buckets. Uh, there's a safety net. So I, I keep my, my emergency fund. I just call it a safety net. 
of a year's worth of pay uh, in in my account. It took me a long time to build that safety net, but I, that's where I keep it, and it grows a little bit. Uh, but it's a, in a more conservative uh, mix of stocks and bond index funds, um, and then uh, and then I have a traditional IRA, which is basically just rollover from when we were in the corporate world. I rolled our old four, my old four hundred one k into the traditional IRA, and then I have two other two other funds. I have a build wealth fund, which is like just my regular investments, and then uh, I have a house fund as well because. As I mentioned on the last episode, episode 58, home, if I want to buy a home one day, I want to be able to put 50% down. So I, this is where I, I save that money. So you can see exactly how much money I've got in there and, and why I use what I use uh, in terms of planning for my retirement. But for Nathan, Ryan, is there any anything else besides, hey, you should really need to start getting on the same page with your fiance, make sure you don't get into debt, plan for your retirement. What else should, should he do? What would you tell your 22, 23-year-old self if you're in his pos- position, just getting out of Texas A&M college, he's finishing up, he's getting married? What advice? Yeah, if I did talk to my 22-year-old self, I would tell myself two things. Uh, first and foremost, yes, like stay out of debt at all costs. Um Yeah. Working a debt payment into your monthly budget is not the best advice. Now, there's somebody out there who's like, well, I got to have a car Mm -hmm. to get to my job, you know, so I can pay my bills, including that car payment. Sure. Well, then get the cheapest car possible. That doesn't mean you got to go get a $200 a month car payment. You can go find a car for three or four thousand bucks. Yeah. uh, Have it paid off in a year or two years or whatever it may be. So if you're going to get into debt, uh, which again, I advise strongly not to do, get in as little debt as possible. Uh, the other thing is, and man, this is like such simple advice, uh-huh. but you know, simple ain't easy. Amen. Spend less money than what you make. Yes. I really wish I could have told my 22-year-old self that because there is something about being you know, 22 and, ha- and starting to have the freedom of credit cards and being able to get into debt. And I would just you know, basically lie to myself and say, Oh, well, one day you're going to make more money. You'll be able to pay all this off. And you know what I did one day I did like when I was, you know, 24, 23, that's when I started slanging cell phones and making good money. But Mm -hmm. I still had that attitude of if I make it, I have to spend it. Yeah. And spending more money than what I had essentially. So, uh, that people always ask me now, like, you know, what is, uh, you know, what's, you know, how do you do your budget now? So forth and so on. And it's like, I, I do have a budget, but regardless, I always make sure to spend less than what I make. Yeah. And, and I just, I wish I, I could have like really just drilled that into my, my, my younger 20 year old self was spend less money than what I make and stay out of debt at all costs. I, I work really hard. So I pay myself, my future self. And at the beginning of each month, so I, I instantly put it into my retirement account. Mm-hmm. I, I, I try to save 50% of what I earn. I'm not recommending that for everyone else. I'm saying f- for what I make, if I, if I can save 50%, I feel outstanding about that. But then there's a, a minimum that, that I try to save as well is 15%, right? Yeah. So I pay myself at least 15%, whatever I make instantly goes in, into my Betterment account every month. And then if I can, I feel really good about, all right, how much money can I put in there this month? All right, I'm going to do that. How, how much money can, and, and, and still live the lifestyle I want to live because I'm debt free now. And so I don't have to worry about every single penny that I'm spending, but I'm paying my future self first. I invest in my future first, and then I give myself permission to spend other money if, if I need it. 
All right, well, of course, we would love to hear what you all have to say. So if you have a comment about finances, money, debt, etc., or if you have any, any tips, any advice for our callers today, then leave us a voicemail, 406-219-7839. We will air our favorite comments and tips on the next episode, and here is a tip for you. Write down your message before you call. It will help you articulate your point and increase your chances of being on the show. Do we give Nathan a book or something? Are we going to... Oh, we probably anything? should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's give him something. Let's send him. Well, a- I asked him about values, right? And so Ryan and I wrote a a book called Minimalism: Live a Meaningful Life. It's the first book that that you and I wrote, and it's about the five higher order values that we uncovered. And I think that's uh, uh, it's going to help him and his his partner, his soon to be wife. Uh, it's going to help them identify what their values are. And so I'd love to send you a copy of that, Sean. If you could reach out to Nathan, good call, Ryan. Uh, if you could reach out to to Nathan, uh, have him read that book or uh, listen to the book if you have an Audible download code. Another book I'm going to recommend, uh, now that I'm thinking of it, our friend Rob Bell and his wife, Kristen Bell, they, they wrote a book called The Zimzum of Love, which is like I think an old Hebrew word or something, Zimzum, and, and it's about sort of the yin and yang of love. I, I, I can't do it justice, but uh, they wrote this book together, and... Um, I don't have a copy, an extra copy of it, but Sean, if you could just buy one, um, yeah, buy one for him and, and send it over to him. Uh, for, and I think him and his, his future wife will find a lot of value in the Zimzum of love as well as our, our book, Minimalism. All right, let's move on to our hashtag Ask the Minimalists lightning round where we answer questions from social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at The Minimalist and Facebook.com slash The Minimalist. Uh, during this lightning round, this is where Ryan and I do our best to answer each question with just a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We also put the text to these minimal maxims in the Sean notes. <laughs> so that you can uh, copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. All right, our first question is from Carl. When is the right time to pay debt off slowly? Hint, I think they're giving us an answer here. Mm-hmm. Hint, kids in medicine. Well, I have just a really long answer. I couldn't come up with a short answer for this one, Ryan. So here's my, my long answer. There's no such thing as good debt. That's pretty good, man. What about you, Ryan? I would say there's no such thing as good debt. <laughs> No, but seriously, like, you know, hint, kids in medicine, yes. Like, if you have, okay, I'm just going to throw a scenario out here. I'm sure someone is, is like, facing this where, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, they have a $500 a month medical bill. Mm -hmm. They need to pay for insulin Mm -hmm. for their kid to live. They also have, uh, you know, this debt that's looming over them. And at the end of the month, they have to choose whether or not they're going to spend $500 towards that debt or on their kid's insulin. Of course, they're going to choose the insulin. But the problem with this scenario is that this person that I'm talking about is waiting until the end of the month to plan for that. Yes. So that's, that is the, the biggest issue is, uh, you know, going back to find a way that you can make an extra 50 bucks a week. And it, it, there's plenty of ways to do that. Uber, Lyft, delivering pizzas, go donate plasma. I like, I seriously, know, I mean, I'm not like saying that everyone should like go out and donate plasma. There are, you know, people who beliefs will, will, would, uh, I don't know why, why well, I do know why being raised as a Jehovah's witness, but I know some people's beliefs are going to like automatically cross that out. Insert good idea to make 50 bucks there. Yeah. Uh, Here's the thing. 
my guess is Carl doesn't have a written budget. I, I, I'd be willing to bet a thousand dollars that he doesn't have a written budget mm-hmm. that he sticks to. Um, and that, that's not a diss to Carl. It, the truth is that 99% of the country doesn't have a written budget. A written budget, and if they do, they don't stick to it. And that—that's the more important. You can have a written budget, but if you don't—if it's just written and that's it, it's nothing. It's worthless. You wasted your time on it. So, what's the best time to pay off debt slowly? There, there is no no best time to pay off debt slowly. You want to pay off debt. If you can't afford to pay it off right now, then you can't afford to pay it off right now. But you want to pay it off as quickly as you can because there's no such thing as good debt. Amen. Next question is from Rachel. Hey, lads. She must be from New Jersey. Any chance you could turn my minimal finances into maximum ones? All right. Uh, let's see. My, my maxim here is the best way to give yourself a pay raise is to spend less money. You remember when our employees hated when we said that to them? <laughs> <laughs> I need a raise. Why don't you spend less money? Hey, man. How about, some, you, how about you don't have a, a Hummer? Remember that one, we had like employees with Hummers? We had, we had a retail store where three employees, three frontline employees owned Hummers, Humvees, Hummer 2 or whatever it's because called. Because they could afford the payment. Right. They couldn't afford the car. No. There was three Hummers and a Corvette parked out in, fr- in front of the store one time. And I was, uh, uh, yeah, it, it was unbelievable. And, and so, yes, the best way to give yourself a pay raise is truly to spend less money. Here is my answer with the correctly placed modifier. Money can solve only so many problems. That's true. That so what true. I'm saying to you, Rachel, is that if Josh and I had a magic wand, and for anyone else out there, and we could just wave a wand and give you millions of dollars, sure, like if you're in a place right now where you're on the street and you have you know no food and your kids are starving, like there is a certain point money will certainly add uh, a level of... of uh, I want to say happiness, but I think it goes beyond happiness. It's uh, nourishment. Yeah, certainty. Yeah. And uh, that will go only so far. Yeah. You yeah. don't need a million dollars to be to be happy. A million um, dollars won't change most people's lives for the better. It will right. change it for the worse. A million dollars well, wouldn't change my life for the better or worse. I'm not a millionaire, but um, I can tell you that a million bucks um, would make certain things easier for me, but it's not going to change my habits. I was married to uh, a gal whose dad was president of a bank. Right. And there were, I believe he told me, six people in his tenure uh, as bank president that won the lottery. Five of the six were bankrupt. And the only person that actually had money, uh, and the reason why they still had money is when they won the lottery, they did nothing different with their lives. Yeah. They literally put it in the bank and they continued life as normal. And didn't go out and do crazy stuff. I actually met one of the guys, believe it or not, uh, who was one of the six who who uh, won the lottery. Mm-hmm. And he, long story short, um, I got invited to play poker at his place. It was a trailer, no electricity. <gasps> and the, the toilet had been replaced with a five-gallon bucket. Oh. So, like, you could pee in the, <laughs> you could pee in the five-gallon bucket. Oh. Yeah, like, this is a true story, man. And um, I just asked him about like what he did with the money, and he loved telling the stories about what he did with the money. But there we were, like no electricity, playing like Texas Hold'em. Oh no! Like with a you know five dollar buy-in. Yeah, because it doesn't change your habits. In fact, no. it accentuates them. And so the nice thing is now, if someone were to hand me a million dollars, 
I would I already have the good habits in place and I have to make sure I continue living with those good habits but it would allow me to contribute more to the world around me and it would allow, allow me to save more for the future but my lifestyle would not change at all right. I'm not going to go buy more clothes or you know I'd build, a, a I, I, I'd build more schools like yeah. if, <laughs> if if I'd won the lottery tomorrow like I would yeah, I'd be, I'd be, you know, uh, even more of a philanthropist. I guess. I yeah. guess I wouldn't really consider myself that right now. But I, I would. I mean, I mean, to a large extent, you do you do a lot of good with with your money, and and it's great, and it's not like tooting your own horn. But uh, what's nice is if we can inspire other people to to contribute. Yeah. You feel great from doing it. It is. It's not a completely altruistic act. It's it, there. There's something in there that makes you feel really darn good. That's why I've I've said twice this episode. Giving is living. You feel most alive when you're able to contribute to the world around you. Yeah. All right. Our next question is from Luke. How can I budget in a house full of non-minimalists? All right. So this will echo something I said earlier, but in a much more pithy answer. Much pithier answer. You're so pithy. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, Luke, agree on outcomes before agreeing on actions. That's good, man. That is pithy. Thank you. You know, I've been listening to this podcast the whole time, and I don't remember <laughs> remember you saying that. Well, I was talking about out- uh, what is your outcome. I, oh, okay. I, I asked okay. Uh, Nathan earlier, well, what's your outcome? So agree on your outcome before you agree on taking it. Quite often, I think the problem is, Ryan, like, I'm going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to save, we're going to da-da-da-da. What's your outcome? Because right. you might start running in one direction, Really, but you're running in the wrong direction. You need to know where you're running, what yes. you're running towards. Yeah, what direction? Uh, here's my pithy response. You don't have to be a minimalist to follow a budget. Yeah, amen. Next question is from Alyssa. How do you afford to pay for a wedding? Well, my short answer is if you have to go into debt, you can't afford it. Now, I think that applies to weddings, but I think that applies to everything whether it's a car a house whatever if you have to go into debt you can't afford it well i mean mean, just to like because i don't want to sound like an asshole like well well if you can't afford a wedding then you're not mature enough to get married like that's not that no no i I know i know maybe i'm saying you can't afford the wedding the wedding the wedding projecting i'm projecting if you want a three hundred thousand dollar wedding but you don't have three hundred thousand dollars, then you can't afford a three hundred thousand yeah. dollar wedding. No, it's absolutely true. You can still have true. a wedding that, that doesn't cost any well, money. Well, here, here's my short answer: a wedding doesn't need to cost an arm and a leg to make it a meaningful experience. Yeah, totally. And I guess, and I guess if I was just going to expound on on any advice uh, on advice for weddings, man, you do not want to start your wedding. You don't want to start your marriage off with you know a ten or a twenty thousand dollar debt do you know how many people i know and this is unfortunate like and i'm not saying that this is going to happen to luke by any i'm sorry not luke but Alyssa. i'm not going to say this is happening to Alyssa by any stretch but you know how many people i know are divorced and they still have wedding debt Mm. like it's it is more than more than i than i uh care to admit i had student loan debt i don't have a college degree I had student loan debt many years after taking some college classes and just, oh, just yeah. put it off. And same thing. Yeah. It, what does that do to the relationship? It strains it. It strains man. it. Yeah. Like, like you're, you're literally starting off the marriage with, with stress from an inexpensive wedding. I yeah. mean, that is tension. You're creating unneeded tension. Yeah. It's, uh, there's going to be people out there who still do it, Josh. Yeah. And I wish them all the best of luck. Yes. But, but you're going to need more than luck. I wish them way more than luck. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our last question. I know Josh has got a long answer for this one. Uh Uh-huh. Chris, how do you guys feel about student debt? All right, here's how I feel. 
There is no such thing as good debt. Ooh. What about you, Ryan? That's good, man. I would say, there's no such thing as good debt. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Podcast Sean, his ears are blown by now, and everyone else who's listening to this. No, but, you know... There's no such. Let's just leave it there. There's yeah. no such thing as good debt. Yeah, I, and you know, well, I, what I'll say is, is that at our, I think it was our Miami event, uh, when we were uh, touring with the documentary, but someone asked this question, and of course we gave you know same answers, um, but there was a gal who like she stood up. I don't even know if you remember this or not, but she stood up and she spoke and she was like, "If you want to know," she's like, "I'm a doctor. I'm a uh-huh. physician." Yeah. And I got through school with zero debt. If you want to know how I did it, feel free to talk to me after after this. And yeah. I will tell you how I was able to go to school yeah. debt-free. It wasn't easy. Like she prefaced it. It was you know, really difficult. It was really, really difficult. But she was able to put herself through uh, school to become a doctor. Eight yeah. years of school. You know what's more difficult? And having no debt at the end of it. Having hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt yeah. afterward and sulking in that debt, being trapped to that debt. That is more difficult. So yeah, if if you're going to go through college and you can't afford to pay for it, which I certainly couldn't have at the time, you, you know, you you have the opportunity to follow someone else's recipe. There is someone else out there who is a doctor, who is an attorney, who is a uh, I don't know who has their underwater dog walking degree, whatever it may be. There's a person who has done that who had a recipe and you can follow their recipe and get the same result to get out of college completely debt-free. It's going to require more work, more effort. You might have to work another job. You have to apply for grants and scholarships. There are things you have to do, but hopefully you can avoid that debt because there's no such thing as good debt. All right, let's move on to our added value portion of the show. This is where we each recommend something that has added value to our lives recently. Ryan, has anything added value to your life recently? Yes, this is a local recommendation for the skiers and snowboarders in Missoula. Uh-huh. So I know that there are people who definitely listen to our podcast who are from Missoula. Um, and I know there's a certain percentage of them who like winter sports like I do. And there's probably a certain percentage of those people who uh-huh. have been told to never go to Snow Bowl because of how difficult it is. And uh, the terrain there is, you know, definitely not for beginners. I will say that, yes, it is a challenging course, but snowball is one of my most favorite. Like when they have good snow, Uh it's probably my favorite place to go snowboarding. Uh, And there are, uh, well, around here within like an hour and a half drive radius. And there are at least one, two, three, there are at least five different places I can think of. And snowball is by far Number one, when they have tons of snow, like just like any other place when they don't have snow, it's not as good. Um, but yeah, if you're one of those people who you're like, oh, I've avoided snowball because I've heard of how rough it is and how hard it is. Just go. You're going to love it. Yeah. Especially like, well, I'm trying to think. This is, is the seventh and it just got, it just got That's a not the closest dump. one to here, is it? Snowball. Yeah. Is it? Okay. So mm-hmm. Bex takes uh, Ella there occasionally, I think. They have a kid's. Yeah, actually, there. if I had a kid, that's where I would probably teach him because it is such a hard course to do. But if you can learn how to ski on that hill, yeah, then you got a pretty good future. And it's, <laughs> it's relatively inexpensive too. Oh yeah, yeah, it's super cheap. Yeah, so it's uh, like yeah, like forty bucks for a lift ticket, forty five bucks, which is 
Um, actually, and kids for, are free there for around here. Forty five bucks is actually kind of expensive because oh. you can go other places for like thirty, thirty five bucks. I just remember that that Ella gets in for free. That's like why I thought it was so cheap. Aspen or something. Yeah, yeah. Kid, I think yeah, under like seven years old, they get free. I think. I think. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, five, go check six, it out seven. if you've been timid because of the rumors you've heard. Like, go check it out for yourself and then decide. All right. Well, uh, we've had a bunch of questions you know, because I often recommend Betterment is who I use. There's also another company called Wealthfront that I know some people use to get value in. Um, you can see my Betterment account in that retirement essay that I mentioned earlier. But a lot of people are like, but I'm not in the United States. I'm in Canada. I'm in the UK or Australia or somewhere in Europe. And so I pulled up these three articles and we'll put links to these in the show notes. Do you know what Quora is, Ryan? The, the, Quora. Yeah, it's like a, a, a website where you can just ask questions and then the best answers get voted up, basically. So ah. these these are not uh, recommendations I'm necessarily making, but for people who are overseas or in Canada, um, here, here are some recommendations. So this one is, it says, are there any European alternatives to investment platforms like Betterment, Wealthfront, et cetera? And the number one answer on this says there are several European alternatives. For instance, uh, United Kingdom has something called Nutmeg, and I saw a bunch of people recommend Nutmeg. So we'll just put a link to this. We, Sean, don't put a link to each one of these individual things. We'll put a link to this article here. Uh, Wealth, uh, Wealth Horizon, Fiverr a day, which sounds pretty interesting, like save, saving five bucks a day. I don't know anything about it. Scalable, Money Farm, Money on Toast, and Wealthify. Uh, Germany, there's some recommendations here. Uh, France, there's uh, two or three recommendations. Austria, there's a recommendation for a place called Scalable. Switzerland, there's a couple recommendations. Spain, Belgium, and a couple other places as well. And there's also a, a, a nice little graphic here that shows the, the history of many of these places. And some of them, like Nutmeg, have been around for a long time, like since 2011, which is a lot in the robo-investment world. Mm. So that's uh, that's the UK and Europe. Uh, in terms of Australia, it looks like there was a, a couple here. Uh, Stockspot was sort of the main robo-advisor for Australia. There are some other ones in uh, this article. Uh, Hedgeable w- was one as well. So we'll, again, we'll put a link to that. Quiet Growth is is another one that someone recommended. So there are definitely some options out there if you're Australian. And then if you're Canadian, there are a bunch of of recommendations here, a separate article here. Um, Wealth Bar, Wealth Simple, Share Owner, Nest Wealth, Smart Money Investments. So there are a bunch there. Again, we'll put a link to to all of that. And what else has actually added value to my life recently? Um, Kevin Rose has something called The Journal. If you just go to thejournal.email I think it is or maybe it's just journal let me look it up real quick I don't want to be wrong it's either journal.email or thejournal.email journal.email nope that's not it so it's got to be thejournal.email Kevin Rose the guy who founded Dig and and some other companies he's he sends out just a a monthly newsletter of things that have added value to his life recently awesome so whether it's a movie or product something that he really likes and there aren't any advertisements in there he just wrote about this and it's just something he's really enjoyed over over the last month and he'll send it out to you maybe it's an album maybe it's a movie maybe maybe it's a book maybe it's a product he'll send it out things that he he's really found value in so i like that and then i've been listening uh this weekend our our friend other sean not podcast sean but other sean sean mahalik who helps with my how to write better uh online writing class he uh he recommended an album 
from a band called Elbow. Are you familiar with this band, Elbow? E-L-B-O-W? Yeah, yeah. Mm, like, no. like uh, Well, they uh, had a new album come out called Little Fictions, and it is so good. I was listening Check to it, it all weekend. Little Fictions by Elbow has added a lot of value to my life uh, last weekend. Or Yeah, I was listening to it last night, and Bex was making dinner, and we were just hanging out, and it was on in the background. It was, it was really outstanding. So check out Little Fictions by Elbow. All right, uh, let's move on to right here, right now. It's where we get to talk about what's going on in the lives of the minimalists. Now, many of you listen to this podcast and you're like, you guys have a website too? Even though we mention our <laughs> website all the time. Our, our website's really what started the minimalists you know, six, over six years ago. And we've got a bunch of new things we've been putting up on the website, new writings. Of course, all of our podcast episodes go up there, but new writings are up on the website as well. And so uh, there's an essay recently. Actually, I'll just we have a list of things that have been on the website recently. So if you subscribe to the website, you already know that anytime a new essay or something comes out, it just shows up in your, your email inbox um, every time we, we publish something new, including all the show notes, they show up as well. But here are some uh, recent examples of, of new essays on, on the website. There's an essay called, Would You Buy It Again? And I'll just read this one because it's really short, but I found it to be really powerful. A lot of people got value from it. That shirt you haven't worn in months, that box of trinkets in the garage, that closet, that basement, that storage locker, all brimming with stuff. What do you own that you don't enjoy? If you could start over, would you buy those items again today? If not, then perhaps today is the day to let go. One day or day one, you decide. And so uh, there, there's little pithy you know, essays, very short, bite-sized essays you can share with friends and other people. They'll show up right in your inbox if, if you subscribe. Let's look at examples of other things that are on the website. Our Critics Podcast, there's a um, Dear Critics essay that we, we wrote. The Love People Use Things Wallpaper. Man, I've seen so many people displaying that on social media. It has been crazy. Shout out to Spire Media, all the folks over at Spire, uh, Dave especially for designing that beautiful wallpaper, which you can find at theminimalist.com. The actual cost of owning a thing was an essay. Uh, The true cost of of a thing goes well beyond the price on the price tag. So that was an essay that just came out. Uh, We also announced things like the Boston uh, Boston event, the minimalists in Boston. So if you're on the email list, you would have been the first to know about that and be able to get the the best seats in the house for any of our events when we come to town. Uh, An essay called Turn Down the Volume. With all the technological advances of the past few decades, we've become more efficient than ever. But with every discrete bit of input, our world has grown louder. And we wrote about that, turning down the volume in the world around us and a bunch of other stuff as well. How to start a successful blog in 2017. Uh, Resolve to review, which is my New Year's resolution. And then back to basics, we talk about how we spent the last six years and we, we sort of look back in the in the rear view for a moment so we can look toward the horizon, getting back to basics this year. And uh, wrote about wrote about that in, in detail the last six years. And then we wrote about the holidays. We had you know, Black Friday essay. We had 40 reasons to avoid shopping on Black Friday. Uh, we had something called Everything for Christmas, which we gave a Christmas gift to our audience. And much, much, much more. A bunch of free stuff, free content on our website, essays, podcasts, events, etc. All that stuff can be found at theminimalists.com. Let me see what else is going on. This is pretty funny, Ryan. You you, uh, you sold this. The um, our book, everything that remains, just came out on um, audiobook 
recently. And so I was doing something to, for the upload for that to work. And I was on Amazon and I saw th there's, there's like this, when you go to Amazon, it says like customer pictures of this product. Right. And I saw this, um, picture of a guy on a boat and I'm like, what this Amazon must've messed something up. So this guy left a review of our book, everything that remains. And what I found so well, interesting. He obviously cashed in his boat mail-in rebate with our book. <laughs> <laughs> Very few people are doing that. <laughs> if you read all the way to the end, there's a mail-in rebate. We send you a boat. <laughs> now, I think the guy, he was just showing what a happy life he is living. Well, yeah, it was he, a picture of him on his boat doing what he loves. Exactly. He said, it's unique, it's priceless, and it's amazing. This book changed my life. And there's a picture of him on his boat enjoying the open sea. And I thought it was a beautiful metaphor. I mean, for me, I wouldn't enjoy being on a boat because I get seasick. Yeah. But this guy is now enjoying what he loves because this the book helped him open his eyes. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you to him and thank you to anyone else who has reviewed the book or, or the podcast or or anything else. So thanks. Thank you for your support for spreading that word. Um, I just found I found it comical. He had a picture of him on his boat as a as a, a customer uh, testimonial, so to speak. Um, anyway, what else is going on? What 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 do I have here? Oh, um, don't collect all three. So finally, all three of our books are available as audiobooks. So essential minimalism and everything that remains. Everything that remains is my personal favorite. They're finally all on audiobook. But, of course, we don't encourage you to collect anything. For those of you who want to know about the distinction between our three books, you can find that at theminimalists.com slash the word three, all spelled out. But um, I'll, I'll give you a brief synopsis. Everything That Remains is the book I recommend starting with. It's sort of our why to book. It's our personal story of, of letting go. It documents our five-year journey from these suit-and-tie corporate guys to becoming minimalists. And, and basically, we, what, we, what we try to do with that book is answer the question, why have I given so much meaning to my, my material possessions? And, and also questions like, why have I been so discontented by the status quo? And what if everything I ever wanted isn't what I actually want? And, and so it answers those questions in sort of the, the narrative format. Uh, Minimalism was the first book we wrote, but it's the second book I recommend reading. If you get past everything that remains, you want more, you can dive deep. It's the what to book. So you go from the why to to the what to. It focuses on the five values that we that, that we focus on for living a, a more meaningful life. And it, it attempts to answer the questions, what is a meaningful life? Who's the person I want to become? And how will I define my success after letting go of all of my excess stuff? And then our third book rounds out the, the trio, the trilogy there, Essential, which is more of a, a how-to book. It's the, the best of the minimalists. It's a collection of 150 essays that focuses on 12 distinct areas of intentional living, from decluttering, gift-giving, and finances, to passion, health, and relationships. And this book attempts to answer the question, how would my life be better with less? And uh, because people enjoy books differently, all three books are available as paperback or ebook or audiobook. And uh, for the best experience, like I said, I recommend reading them in that order sort of going from why to to what to to how to is makes the most sense to me. And then, of course, we'll have people say, but doesn't selling a book fly in the face of your minimalist ethos, Ryan? Aren't the minimalists asking people to consume more stuff? Josh, as one of the minimalists, my life is steeped in irony at this point. <laughs> He's actually sitting in a vat of irony right now. <laughs> Look at all this irony. It's everywhere. Not very minimal with irony. <laughs> So I, I think it's a fair question, except 
books are not consumables they are experiences so you can consume the experience you can own the experience the value is not in the artifact itself the value is in the words so uh, we don't want you to consume our books we want you to experience <laughs> them right but if you do make a everything that remains smoothie you let us know how it tastes <laughs> oh it tastes enlightened <laughs> <laughs> all right so um yeah do we want you to purchase our books sure uh, only if you're willing to read them uh, yeah, you can probably course. go to the library and get them for free, though, just so you know. Yeah, and, and do not collect them. If you're finished with the book, pass it on to someone else who can find value in its pages, in that experience, right? Or instead of buying our books, as Ryan said, you, you can you can find them at your local library. And if your local branch doesn't have any of our books, then you can ask them to order it. Most libraries are delighted to fulfill your, your request as, as a local patron. So... Uh, no matter the vehicle, no matter what it is, whether it's our essays, our podcasts, our books, or our documentary, we hope you find value in, in our message. And above all, we want to add value to your life. So however you decide to to experience that content, we're, we're grateful you're here. And you're giving us your two most precious resources, your, your time and your attention. And we are definitely grateful for that. Last thing I have, Ryan, is if people are really interested in advertising on this podcast, 30-second or 60-second advertisements, or if you want a big banner ad on our website, too bad. Ha <laughs> ha! You know what? We don't do advertisements because advertisements suck, but you can support us. You can either uh, donate to the calls if, you, if you'd like. You just go to theminimalists.com slash donate, or you can leave a five-star review uh, on iTunes for this podcast. Either one of those will help us spread our message. Ryan, you got anything else? Yeah, they could give us uh, a hug over Twitter too. I like, I like, tw- I like hu- Twitter hugs. Twugs, twugs, patent pending. <laughs> twugs dot com. Uh, yeah, man, I got, I got a lot of this stuff. I'd like to give you here. Take this, Josh. Here are some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. Hello, my name is Andrew Melito, and I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, man, Les, I just wanted to say uh, I love the podcast, and I wanted to share an idea that my wife did for my uh, this past Christmas. Um, I was asking for nothing, trying to be minimalist and, and trying to kind of reduce the clutter uh, coming into our house. So what she ended up doing for me was um, taking her name off of many, many mailing lists which and gave that to me as a Christmas gift. And I thought that was a really awesome idea because I'm always on her about the clutter and the waste that comes into via mail. Uh, about a year ago, I did all of that for myself, taking myself off the mailing list. and love that I don't get a bunch of unimportant paper waste into my house. And um, she went ahead and unsubscribed from some of the more uh, larger catalogs that she got. So I wanted to spread that as an idea and uh, tell you guys thanks again for, for the podcast. Um, I love listening to it, and I love uh, hearing the tips and tricks that you guys have, especially that this minimalist thing is not really a black and white thing, um, and I can use the quote-unquote ingredients to kind of make it work for my life. Hey, guys. My name is Ender Goachman. I'm in uh, Minnesota, up north here, and I'm just responding to a recent podcast on criticism. Uh, there's a saying that I always kind of say to myself, because uh, I do some work that involves a lot of input from people that always in always isn't welcome, and that is, uh, the, the quote is, to escape criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. And so that was very poignant um, and kind of relates to what you guys are talking about. Hey, guys. This message is from Steve in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. I truly enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm adding a ton of value to my life 
through the various topics you discuss. I'm even learning new words, such as superfluous. I have a minimalism tip I would like to share with my fellow listeners. I'm in the process of becoming a minimalist. I am constantly evaluating my possessions and discerning my wants for my needs, as well as questioning the value that certain items bring to me personally. Recently, I was on the verge of selling my beloved custom Gibson ES335 guitar, a guitar that I truly enjoy and use often. I was convinced that this item needed to go. However, I was still on the fence. I was ready to depart with one of my most prized possessions, but hesitant. The reason I wanted to get rid of this item is because I have another electric guitar that I also use frequently. I use both of both of these guitars often and consider them to be what you all refer to as tools. As I began to clean up the guitar and post an ad on Craigslist, I began to look around at the ridiculous amount of other items that still occupied my home. In that moment, I realized there were an abundance of items that literally brought me zero value and meant much less to me than this guitar. I soon began to truly evaluate my possessions. After taking a few weeks to think more on this particular item, I had I donated and trashed so many other useless objects in the process. If I had written out a list of every item I owned and ranked them in order of importance to me, there would have been hundreds below this particular guitar. I learned a valuable lesson in this process. I was so stuck on the idea of becoming a minimalist and become and getting rid of things that I forgot who I was in the process. Guitars are a big part of my life. So, my fellow minimalists, don't get rid of the things that you know bring you joy. Get rid of all the no-brainers first. Then, if you reach a point where you realize you still do not want that particular item, maybe you will, in fact, still depart from it. But for me, it was all the other crap in my life that I needed to get rid of first. Not one of the few items that I truly love. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. If you have a question for The Minimalists, give us a call, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. There's no such thing as good debt. (laughs) 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 No, 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 no. If you leave here with one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have you gotta reach for and you gotta grab oh i bet that you'll be fine without it so tear your eyes away or tear